Welcome everybody to episode one of season two of Who the Hell is Norfolk? This is of course the companion podcast to the far better researched A History of England by Mr. David Beeson, my father, who is my co-host here. I'm Michael Beeson. Uh, welcome, Daddy. Welcome to you and uh, many thanks and Happy New Year to you and all our listeners. Yes, indeed. It's a new season and a new year. Time for changes. Hopefully this podcast is sounding better and better as discussed in the previous episode. But we're going to get right into it. This episode, we're going to be talking about episode 13 of A History of England, which is named A Wise Fool. This covers the reign of James I of England and the Sixth of Scotland. It, it's quite a dense episode. It deals with a lot of different issues, such as his attitude towards union between England and Scotland, his uh, relationship with Parliament, uh, his relationship with Spain, with Catholicism. There's a whole bunch of things going on here. So, uh, I know this is impossible to say concisely, but how would you characterise James's reign? Well, I would have to say it was fairly crappy, um, <laughs> if you want a single word. May I say in passing, by the way, I apologise for the depth. I'll try and be more shallow in future. Um, <laughs> I think he was probably rather less crappy than some of the other Stuarts, though they were all of them pretty hopeless. Uh, Charles I, probably the worst of them all. That's uh, his son. Uh, but James I, you know, set the bar reasonably high anyway. Or low, depending on how you view it. Or low, yes, exactly. Right, so as we remember from the confusions of the previous episodes, he was the son of Mary, Queen of Queen Scots. Scots, He yep. was sister to, cousin to Elizabeth. No, no, her relationship to Elizabeth I was quite convoluted, right? Well, not that convoluted. I think uh, Elizabeth was her first cousin once removed, which means that Elizabeth's father, who was Henry VIII, was the brother of Mary's grandmother. And then James took a very long time to come down from Scotland to England uh, upon uh, being named king, during which he completely trampled on habeas corpus. I don't know. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, I don't know about habeas corpus because uh, I'm not sure to what extent that was regarded really as a right. In that. I mean, I'd have to check that out. I mean, habeas corpus is a long-established right, but to what extent it was recognised by the courts, I don't know. But there was uh, a sense that if someone was going to be executed, he had to be uh, tried first. So he had to appear before court, a court and a court had to condemn It was him. a summary execution. Yeah, he just simply said, hang him. Uh, which I think is the the way an absolute king would behave. So yeah, so this is this is like the the central theme of James's reign, right? Like he he believed that he was he had an absolute right to absolute power, you know, through divine um... authority. Yes, absolutely. I think uh, I mean the old English way of seeing uh, let's call it leadership, because I mean a lot of these guys, you know, if you go way way back to Anglo-Saxon times. These people were mostly chieftains rather than true kings. Um, and there was this sense that they were the embodiment of the tribe. So terribly important. And, you know, there's all that Tolkien-y stuff about the right blood and all the rest of it. You yeah, descended yeah. from the people. And you might even claim descent uh, from a god you know, way back in time. Yeah, mm. uh, But, you know, you were part of the tribe and you, know, you led it. Uh, I think there is this sense that uh, a king in the time of Louis the Fourteenth. I mean, I think he's probably the greatest example, French king, of somebody who regarded kingship as absolute. 
uh, and I think James, uh, was a little earlier, uh, had the same kind of idea, is that you know, God actually selects the person to be king, and then he's anointed with oil during the coronation ceremony, which I think is still done. I remember that from the crown. Yeah, there you go. And you know, that makes him the anointed chosen of God. Uh, I seem to remember Christ was anointed in the Bible. I mean, it's, it's that kind of level of divinity. Now, I mean, you know, if that's the case, if you've been selected by by God to hold this kind of power, it gives you a very different uh, status compared to your subjects uh, from anybody else's. Uh, you know, you may well have been elected to Parliament, but so what? You know, this guy has the authority of God behind him. Yeah, know? so he, he didn't really respect the power of Parliament. Though, I mean, he respected it enough that he had to run by their rules. You know, for example, with the tax collection idea. Yeah, had- I think he did it because, uh, you know, he he realized that he didn't actually have the temporal power, you know, in practice, the actual practical power to do anything about it. Yeah, I mean, did, did, did he, do, you know, do we know if he had much of a, an army, if, if any at all? No, I mean, uh, uh, one of the things that Britain was famous for was having a very small army. Um, there was a dislike of standing armies. Uh, they, they always felt as being dangerous. So there was always like levees and... Yeah, yeah, there were... There were yeah, yes, that's right. It was militias and uh, mm-hmm. uh, people would be called up for particular things. Like, do you remember Elizabeth I reviewing the troops in, um, in yes. Tilbury? And, yeah. You know, the, the men she was uh, uh, reviewing were, I believe, militia, you know, called up specifically up and, to yeah. resist uh, an invasion by the Spanish. Uh, so that's the way we tended to work, I think. Right, OK. At this point, the island wasn't a single nation. And we have this rather confusing situation of James being the king of two countries, Scotland and England. And he's already talking about Great Britain as a as a single idea, yeah. but Parliament won't have any of it. No, that's right. I mean, uh, okay, one of the nations of Britain had been so completely assimilated to England as to have lost virtually any traces of nationhood. And is that country more or less the size of Wales? It is exactly the size of okay, Wales. Okay, cool, yes, cool. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, we know that this can happen, yeah? Even in law today, you know, laws are made for England and Wales. You know, and you can almost spell that as a single word or at least hyphenated. Uh, but Scotland uh, was and still is to some extent separate. Right. There, there's nothing to stop uh, a single person being king of two places. That, you know, that, 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 that's perfectly possible. Well, it seems to happen a lot in this period. And I'm always a bit confused by it because it's, there's a sense that it doesn't really matter. They're still quite separate, the two countries. Yes. I mean, you know, later on, uh, uh, we had the Hanoverian kings in England. So we're talking uh, 18th century now. Uh, they were kings of England or kings of Great Britain eventually um, and electors of Hanover. So you know, Hanover was one of the German uh, sort of principalities, if you like, whose ruler was called an elector because he was one of the people that elected the Holy Roman Emperor. Um and there was nothing whatever to stop you being, you know, king of Britain and uh, elector of Hanover. So, I mean, um, presumably, like, the advantages for those people is they get more money or more, or they have more leverage when negotiating things because they have the potential of more military power. I don't know, like, I'm, it's just sort of, like, culturally, it seems to not have a massive impact, necessarily. Uh, no, I mean, yeah, uh, 
you know, talking about uh, uh, the Hanoverians, I mean, poor old uh, Handel, George Frederick Handel, the composer, actually ran away to England to get away from the ghastly Elector of Hanover, only to discover a few years later that the Elector of Hanover became King of England. <laughs> and so there he was back again. So I suppose you could say you know, there was a Hanoverian influence on culture there. Handel, yeah. the great British composer, was actually from Hanover. <laughs> um, oh, sorry, he served, he worked in Hanover. I don't know if he was born in Hanover. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I suppose the advantage of having multiple titles is it's unlikely the two nations will fight each other. That would be weird. It would be weird. Uh, if there is a war, you know, you could pretty well count on the other country providing support, support troops yeah. or whatever. Yeah, so it's like a sort of a, an ultra alliance, but it's not quite it is. the two th- yeah. two places becoming one nation, as you might assume. Absolutely. I mean, for instance, the British Parliament had no say in the affairs of Hanover. Hanover had its own government. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, there were Hanoverian troops uh, uh, on the field of Waterloo. Um, okay. Oh, yeah, you know, fighting with the British, I should say, just just but, to make that absolutely clear. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, so um, Parliament didn't want, for example, free trade between England and Scotland, uh, presumably because, well, for duties. But my understanding is that tariffs from trade, only the king could control, right? Uh, yeah, tariffs were not necessarily the only, but the, the main uh, source of income on which a king could count without parliamentary authority without asking for a specific right. vote of additional taxation. So that's one aspect of uh, tariffs that they generated an income. And in this case, it went to the king. Uh, the other aspect of uh, tariffs is that they block trade. Uh, and that's in many ways the much more important one. Uh, for instance, when uh, uh, England started to uh, establish control in India, one of the things it did is put huge tariffs on uh, imports of textiles from India. On the other hand, it absolutely insisted on free trade into India. So when, oh. yeah, so so English products could be sold in India with no tariffs, so they could constantly undercut. Uh, uh, well, certainly they Local could prevent Indian exports being at all economic. Um, so when you hear people talking about uh, freedom of trade, you know you always take, need to take that with a pinch of salt. It's like <laughs> yeah. most people, when they talk about freedom, they usually mean their own freedom, yeah? Uh, so you know, people yes. who are very, very tight about freedom of speech, yeah. they mostly mean, I have the right to say what I like to you, but you bloody well shut up while I'm talking. Well, yeah. Yeah? If, uh, if listeners are re- listening from the future, this is, uh, we're, we're, we're several months into Elon Musk's recent takeover of Twitter, and we've certainly seen an example of different interpretations of what freedom of speech might mean. And it's certainly not the absolute freedom of speech that maybe he had been promising beforehand. But yes, I suppose none of us should be surprised by this kind of behavior. Yes, it's called differential freedom of speech, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> um, and the same thing applied with freedom of trade. Uh, and yeah, I mean, uh, in the end, Scotland, of course, did get to f- trade freely with England. Ireland, on the other hand, was it was even worse there in many ways because uh, they, uh, uh, the English applied very tough tariffs on uh Irish trade, as well as actual legislation to stop them getting into certain areas of business which they felt they needed to protect English uh, industry. Uh, and that had a massively damaging effect on Irish development. Protectionism is always so short-sighted. It, it, if, if you have completely open trade, there's a chance you lose domestic production. Um, but it seems like protectionism only helps those domestic producers it doesn't help customers it doesn't help the nation it doesn't help i don't know it, it it's 
Yeah, you know, funny enough, you know, I've now reached just the the point in this uh, podcast and in the other one, the, the real one, guys, <laughs> uh, where I'm into the 1860s, and you know, one of the things that was done there was that a a, a trade agreement, not a free trade agreement, so there were still tariffs in place, but many of them were reduced between uh, Britain and France, and you know, had lots of good. Yeah, you know, lots of benefits. Yeah, lots of brie. Well, lots of brie and lots of wine. Funny enough, going mm. one way and lots of British products going the other way. Uh, both countries benefited by a big increase in volume of trade between the two. Yeah, countries. yeah. It's a win-win situation. There's not zero sum because you can actually increase the pot, um, and then I suppose there's debates about how much of the pot each person, each side gets. But yeah, the idea that there's a limited amount and then it's about less for them means more for me is not necessarily true. Absolutely. Uh, so, so in the end, he was unable to formalise a union between Scotland and England. So when did Great Britain, as a concept, as a, as a nation, form? 1707. So 1707. The, the Act of Union. So that's, so like right now, uh, we're sort of, we're still a good... 16, well, he came to the throne in 1603. Yes, yeah, another century to and go. And the Act of Union was 104 years later, yeah. And then it's a century after that, I think. It's around 1808. I'm saying this off the top of my head. Or perhaps a bit earlier. Yeah, I think it might be earlier. I think it's when William Pitt the Younger was still alive. You get the uh, the Act of Union with Ireland. So you that creates the United Kingdom, then known as the United Kingdom of Britain and Ireland. Today, of course, it's the United Kingdom of Britain and Northern Ireland. Yes, yes. But James, you know, he was keen on the idea. Uh, well, I'm not saying that he was necessarily keen on free trade. Oh, okay. I think what he was keen on was uh, uh, becoming the king of a bigger nation. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. So more of a selfish... But I mean, like, he seems like a bit real mix. Like, he's absolutely uh, a tyrant when it comes to Parliament. He regularly dissolves them, it seems, whenever they don't agree with him. But then leaving him powerless, essentially, is my understanding, no? Mm-hmm. I mean, a and... tyrant is a bit over the top, as he didn't sort of kill them all. He didn't behave like Henry VIII. Um, okay. That's true. Yes. Yes. That's the thing. He, he strikes me as somewhat less awful as someone like Henry VIII. I mean, he seems to tolerate Catholics plenty. In fact, even had bringing some of them into his inner circle, though he himself was Protestant. It really is just a question of him wanting his personal power, like feeding this sort of, like maybe, is the idea that just he's that he doesn't particularly care which God you believe in, so long as you believe that God appointed him. <laughs> yes, to some extent there's that, yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, he would say it's the Christian God. Um, yeah. And uh, I suppose he would argue that it's the same God of the Catholics, uh, which is why the Catholics in Ireland, for instance, owed him allegiance to, um, and uh, why it annoyed him when they became rebellious. I mean, you know, obviously... The relations of uh, Britain and Ireland you know, down the centuries have always been of uh, uh, you know, uh, confrontation and even violence, and the, his reign was no exception. Uh, and that was one of the questions you asked me uh, a while back about you know, why you know, his attitude towards Ireland. I think his attitude, you know, and above all to the Catholics there, if he was to some extent sympathetic to Catholicism, why did he behave so badly to the Irish? I think the answer is that he behaved badly to people he saw as rebels. Um, right, yes, that, he took it personally. Yes, it's less to do with, with them being Catholics. Yeah, because he seems relatively tolerant towards 
the Spanish, you know, as we as we're going to see in the later episodes, you know, he does try to he does think about marrying off his son to a Spanish princess. And later he marries that when that match fell through, he married him to a, a French Catholic princess. So you know there was. Yeah, he was open to working with the Catholics. Yeah, so his his being horrible to the Irish is not really to do with their religion, but rather that they they didn't follow the cult of James the First and Sixth. Yeah, the, the, well, I mean, I think yeah, a lot of Irishmen wanted to be free of English dominance. Um, yeah, who can blame? Him? And yeah, quite. Uh, and of course, then what he did, you know, looks like a, a, a particularly strong Protestant uh, initiative. He sent a uh, Scotsman, Protestant Scotsman, across from Scotland to Ireland to uh, colonise the north of Ireland. Yeah, at any or, rate. or some um, might say occupy, but yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think, they, I think they call it the plantation, don't they? Uh, and they, you know, they drove Catholics off their land and uh, you know, established themselves there. And you know, I think the aim of that was to have uh, a loyal uh, local population on whom we could count. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, the fact that they were Protestants was one of the reasons for their loyalty, uh, but it wasn't their religion that mattered. It was the loyalty that mattered. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I thought it was quite interesting, as I said in the in the episode, that actually, although, you know, we all know about the Protestants who escaped across the Atlantic to America at this time, so you got the Pilgrim Fathers and all that, uh, that was at this time, Escaped to uh, uh, America. Far more, far more Protestants went to Ireland. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they could be a part of the oppression. And yeah, I guess they exactly. Were, yeah, yeah. There's like a they tool, were just really. as oppressive in, in in America as well. Of course, where you know it wasn't yes. good news for the for the uh, Native Americans when these guys arrived, and it wasn't good news that they were there when other uh, uh, immigrants arrived either. So the problem with Spain was. There's always been something like a war going on with Spain. Now, this is a bit of a vague statement, but it feels like there's always something happening. And now we've got something going on in Germany, right? Yeah, I mean, uh, um, war with Spain officially was from 1585, so under Elizabeth. That's when she sent uh, uh, Leicester out there with, a, with an expeditionary force, which didn't go very well. Uh, But one of the things that James did, and that was pretty early on, I mean, it was the year after he came to the throne in 1604, was to sign a, in fact, it's called the Treaty of London, uh, with Spain, with with Philip III of Spain. Um, And that got English troops out of Holland uh, and Spain uh, agreed to let leave Ireland alone. I mean, you may remember that the Spanish did land uh, troops in uh, English territory several times, but that would be mostly in in Ireland. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, sorry, entirely in Ireland. So that that was their agreement that they would not fight each other. So the war was over in sixteen o four. But then what happened is that you get war breaking out, the Thirty Years' War. As you mentioned, it took them a while to realize what to call it. Yeah. Yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah. Um, and it was essentially a, a religious war. And you know, one of the things that several of the great powers. Uh, came to realize quite quickly was that wars are quite destructive. Uh, It's a bit irritating to have them on your own territory, particularly as there's not much in the way of loot because you don't really want to be looting your own people. So the nice thing is to have a a war abroad where you can collect loot 
and where any damage and you know, harm done is done to somebody else. Uh, and the convenient place to have these wars was somewhere which was broken up into hundreds of tiny little principalities and things and nobody cared about, and that was Germany. Uh, and for you know the next 100 years or so, almost, in fact, more than that, yeah, nearly 200 years, I suppose, 250 years or so, uh, you know, it was very convenient to meet and fight in Germany. And most of the fighting <laughs> of the Thirty Years' War took place in Germany. Uh, yeah, there, right. there's a there's a there's a a Brecht play, uh, Mother Courage, uh, all about you know, the suffering of uh, German people in the uh, in the Thirty Years' War. Uh, but one of the victims, one of the early victims of the Thirty Years' War, was Charles V of the Palatinate, which is you know, now known as you know, Pfalz in German, was known then as Pfalz in German. Um, and uh, now there is a Lunt in Germany called Rheinland Pfalz, which includes the Panatid. And Philip V uh, was uh, its leader. Uh, and uh, he was you know, probably the leading Protestant prince of Germany at the time. And, uh, oh, okay, so it was relatively major. It wasn't a sort of. Yeah, 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 yeah. It wasn't tiny, tiny, tiny. Not, not by any account. No, but I mean, they were all of them small. So it was the. You know, one of the biggest of a bunch of very small states, yeah? Right. And uh, he, uh, J- James, married his daughter Elizabeth uh, to this this character. So he'd married uh, one of his children into one of the major uh, Protestant families. And then Spain goes ahead and, and declares war And invades them. it, yeah. And invades it, occupies invades, it. Right. Dis- deprives him of his, uh, of his land. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's where uh, things turned a bit nasty. Yes, and well, we're going to get more into details about that later. But yes, but Parliament essentially he, he needed Parliament's approval to get funding for the war. But then when they discovered he's trying to marry his son off to a Spanish princess, they're like, "Wait, what? What are you playing at?" I'm sorry, it was Frederick V, not not Philip V. I apologise. Okay, listeners, paid. I want you to cast your minds back to everything we just said. And replace Philip V with Frederick V. I think that, that should do it, shouldn't it? It should. So, this thing about dissolving Parliament. I, 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 every now and then, it seems to the, the, a monarch decides to dissolve Parliament. So, what does that mean exactly? I'm not sure. Is it not something with, with involving acid or anything? No, no. Uh, I mean, I suppose they can be quite sour about it, but you know, it doesn't <laughs> actually involve the application of acid. Uh, no, I mean, even today, it's still the monarch who dissolves Parliament, uh, and they do it uh, uh, each time you know, a general election is called. There is a dissolution of right. Parliament. So in in principle, what then happens, and in practice back then, is that the members of Parliament all go home. You know, they, it ceases to meet. Um, yeah. It can't do anything, you know, it, it, since it's no longer meeting. But like in uh, the case of James doing it, like what can he do without Parliament? Well, that's it. That was his problem. But he, he literally would send people home. So, you know, the lords would go back to their estates and the uh, uh, members of the commons would go back to their towns or wherever they came from, um, their boroughs. Uh, and, yeah, they would no longer be members of parliament because, you know, there was no parliament to be a member of. So, I mean, that's what mm-hmm. happens when you dissolve parliament. There is no longer a parliament, yeah? Yeah. And, like, it, it, it really seems to be very useful for the person who does it in, as, a, as a political move. You know, recently we had the, the, the something of a fiasco in Peru, you know, when the president dissolved the proven equivalent of the parliament 
because they were looking into his corruption or whatever. And then the very next day he was deposed. But there were also, I remember in England, was, recently wasn't there an issue with Boris Johnson trying to dissolve Parliament in a rather shameful manner? No, he didn't try to dissolve it. He tried to prorogue it, which is a slightly different thing. Uh, right. I mean, that happens you know, all the time in a sense. I don't know whether they always call it prorogation, but you know, Parliament has sessions and you know, MPs, like anybody else, need breaks. Um, and you know, they can be holidays, but they can also be times when they go back to the constituencies and just focus on the constituency work because you know, MPs in do in have In theory, you're supposed to be representing a specific area, yes. You can't spend all your time in London. Yes. Um, and then, yeah, as well as dissolving Parliament, he would actively actually insult them. Yes. Um, calling them, well, what, yeah, what was the phrasing he used? He said something about he didn't have patience with fools, didn't he? I can't remember the exact yeah, words, yeah, but yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, so so, and you and in your episode you mentioned that you know people have discovered that that is rarely a winning uh, a strategy. strategy. Yeah. Uh, and I was trying to think of examples because I, I I've thought I've thought of a few, and interestingly enough, all the examples I can think of are left wing. Because I remember in two thousand sixteen, Hillary Clinton famously uh, referred to Trump voters as a basket of deplorables. Yeah. Uh, which you know very much backfired, and in fact they've they've taken not not completely, but they've taken on the term deplorable almost as a badge of honor. Yeah. Uh, I remember Obama talking about people clinging on to their Bibles and guns, which you know is, is not a is, is not a very uh, veiled uh, claim of them being rather dumb. And then the last one I could think of was in England with Gordon Brown when confronted by a Brexiteer woman, later referred to her as a as a bigot and then had to apologise. <laughs> yes, he didn't realise his microphone was still live. Yes. Yeah. And like, yeah. Can you think of any other examples of politicians who have learnt the hard way that it's never a good idea to insult your enemies? Well, I mean, yeah, it, it, it's quite curious. There's actually been research on the subject. Well, first of all, of course, don't forget that when James I was being, uh, you know, insulting he was addressing parliament yeah and i think there are very few politicians who would lose out much by being rude about parliamentarians you know, <laughs> most voters think parliament you know it's one of these strange paradoxes whereby we vote for these guys and we often you know campaign very hard for them or or against the other one or whatever but then when they get elected they're all Part of the swamp, aren't they? You know. Uh, well, I mean, I, I mean that's like, again, listeners in the future, whatever we're, we're seeing now, the complete chaos in the Republican Party in the United States, where several of those of the Republican senators were put there by people who hate senators, and they, they're acting accordingly, or, or maybe congressmen. Yeah. And so they couldn't they couldn't elect a leader of the House because you had these. Yes, that was congressmen. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, but I mean, I think we you know we all suffer this. For, uh, to some extent, you know, I, I, I've campaigned for someone to be elected and then felt, you know, appalling about by, you know. by his remorse immediately. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so you know, I, I don't think James would have suffered particularly from being rude about parliamentarians. I think most people would agree with him. And of course, uh, he didn't need voters either. So you know, uh, he had one vote, and the one vote mattered because it was God's. Yeah. Um, yes. So you know, it didn't matter too much to him. Uh, but yes, certainly. I mean, you know, if you've ever campaigned for a candidate, you'll be told uh, by the people running the campaign that at no point should you ever say anything that suggests contempt for electors, because that does not work. It, uh, you know, it, it, it 
it immediately blows back against you, yeah? You know, mm. and access, you know, if you like, in Britain now, it's difficult, for instance, on the Brexit issue, you cannot tell people that they were stupid to have voted for Brexit. Uh, there are or more racist, and more people, or, yeah, or whatever, yeah. Whatever. And there are yeah. more and more people who are now regretting their vote on Brexit, but it's very important that they should not be made to feel that they had been fooled. Um, yeah. Uh, because they, that can get people to dig their heels in and uh, stick to their original decision, even if they know that it was a wrong decision, yeah? Um, yeah, because it's more about yeah, like being personally against those exactly, snobs exactly. who are, yeah, yeah. But if you like some of the similar, more, well, okay, let's take an example of a right-wing politician being rude about uh, about uh, voters. Like Donald Trump was very nasty about voters in Iowa when he was uh, campaigning for the uh, nomination, the Republican domination back in 2015 or 2016, whatever, for the 2016 election anyway. Yeah? Uh, he actually said, uh, because it sounded like a lot of them were, going to, were thinking of voting for Ben Carson. You may remember that uh, oh, he, yeah, yes. he was the gynecologist or whatever who was campaigning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, clown. Yeah. Well, um, Trump actually said, how stupid are the people of Iowa? How stupid are the people of the country to believe this crap? Um, <laughs> so, you know, he was very rude about uh, uh, Iowans. about you know, the so self-aware. <laughs> Quite. Uh, interestingly, he didn't win the Iowa caucuses. I mean, Iowa's a bit complicated because it isn't a true primary it's these caucuses that yeah it's, it's you know, people running around in a big room isn't it yeah that's right that's right so uh uh yeah it's a little more difficult to assess but he came second if you like uh well that's the thing like like i mean he he did that famous statement about he could shoot somebody in fifth avenue and people would still vote for him which to me is clearly him calling people stupid but yeah they seem to cheer him on yes indeed and indeed although he came second in iowa uh he came second to ted cruz not to carson Carson came way behind him. So, you know, did it work? Maybe it worked. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. (laughs) And I I actually read a paper by a a German academic who talks about the fact that uh, people like the polite politician. So he gives the example of Angela Merkel, who apparently never raised a voice, never lost a temper in public, was always polite and courteous to adversaries and so forth, yeah? Uh, mm. And people like that, except for those who regarded it as rather wooden and dull and you know, uninspiring. And in, I think it was 2013 or something, she ran against uh, a social democrat called Per Steinbrück, who was exactly the opposite. I mean, he actually referred to some of his uh, fellow MPs as... Uh, 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 stupid. I can't remember what words he used, but you know, it was aggressive. Uh, it was cry aggressive. babies and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. And well, he didn't win. Uh, mm-hmm. But you know, as the academic argued, some people may see that as being much more dynamic, self-confident, strong. You know that so being rude isn't necessarily going to play against you. So did he lose? I suppose it depends on your kind like, of campaign as well. No, like if your campaign is basically we hate those guys, then yeah. being negative and cantankerous is probably a good idea. Yes, I mean, it, it clearly worked for uh, Trump, didn't it? I mean, he was extremely rude to Hillary Clinton repeatedly. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, people who were looking for 
something different, something very strong. Yeah, they, want, they wanted forceful. to fill their, their mugs with liberal tears. Yes. Well, the, the, you know, they would be attracted by that behavior. So it can cut either way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. But, but in, in James's case, I guess the problem was obviously that he's not running for election, but it meant that. You know, he kept burning any potential bridges between him and Parliament. Yes, that's right. I mean, that's the real problem. If you need Parliament, then being rude about parliamentarians is probably not the best way of, uh, of getting them on board. And I think, yeah, this is what I was thinking about him earlier on when we first started talking about him, is that he couldn't win support. You know, he couldn't bring people on board. That was one of his major problems. Right, uh, he, yeah. He should have been able to stroke them, you know. I, I, yeah, yeah he, he, could, he was this sort of wannabe academic or intellectual who yes. looked down on the very people he needed to work with. Yeah. And, yeah, and, and yeah, especially when you, if you've grown up believing you've been chosen by God, I mean, eh, of course he's going to be totally up his own behind. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, yes, well, I, as I said, this, is, this episode was it's quite a dense episode. We had a lot of themes I feel like there's still more to plumb here, but... Uh, yes, we've plumbed enough. Yes. Uh, but yes, well, I, I think I'm excited about this new season of Who the Hell is Norfolk? And uh, next episode, we'll be talking much more about James Moore, to, more regarding his private life, his family life. And for our listeners out there, please, by all means, uh, get, send us your thoughts, questions, uh, suggestions to who the hell is Norfolk at gmail.com. And uh, by all means, oh crap, my, my, I got distracted. My cats are being really funny right now. <laughs> so, three, two, one, bananas. Bananas. Oh, that was a long delay there. Uh, that was me. Oh, you... That was, that was slow. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't say it at the same time. <laughs>